Right, so hi everyone and welcome to Architecture in the Den. And today um, I'm delighted to welcome Simon Ricketts. So um, Simon's a planning lawyer who I met on Clubhouse. Um, so I uh, went on Clubhouse sort of in the middle of lockdown, I think it was in January. Yeah. And um, we've been speaking, I think, uh, virtually every week. Yes, um, and it's been it's been really good um, to kind of get to know you and um, enjoy conversations and our power paths cross. Um, so I'm delighted to invite you and welcome you onto our podcast. Well, so thank you, Lisa. <laughs> delighted, <laughs> flattered, and it's really good to see you as well as hear you. <laughs> I've just muted myself because I've got a bit of a cold. So <laughs> if you hear me go quiet, it's because I'm having a little coughing fit. Anyway, so um, just why why does anyone need a plan planning lawyer? Well, that's a good question to start with. Um, if everything worked well and the world was perfect, no one would need any lawyers. If the development system worked perfectly, then uh, uh, we probably wouldn't need quite as many planning lawyers as there are at the moment. I suppose um, the things that drive the need for a planning lawyer on a project are, first of all, complexity. The bigger it is, the more complex the issues that arise, um, the more likely it is that um, it's going to be helpful to have a bit of um, sort of guidance, first of all, on procedural issues, perhaps with some rigour as to you know what, 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 what the rules actually are about validity or notices or determination timescales or the or the structure of the application or anything like that, uh, or uh, to help with the substantive arguments. You know, how do you argue that um, this proposal meets a particular policy test? What precedents can you draw on? So one thing is complexity. Um, the other thing is more prosaic, which is a sort of transactional need if there's an agreement needed. So if you've got a section 106 agreement that is required in order to, for permission to be issued, then um, reach for your planning lawyer. And thirdly, um, there's the Rumpole of the Bailey moment, which is, you know, when things get contentious, whether that's uh, going to a planning appeal or um, a, a judicial review in the courts. So, so um all, all of that um, sends people uh, our way, I suppose. So for me, dealing with kind of uh, extensions, we tend, um, I, our first point of call would be a planning consultant. Yes. So I guess, do you take instruction from planning consultants? Uh, planning consultants are probably our best friends after architects um, in that, um, no, no, actually most of our work does come by way of referrals from planning consultants and we sort of work symbiotically um, there is no clear dividing line between what we do and what a planning consultant does but um, uh, yeah and on those smaller projects that you mentioned um, Lisa I suppose where we come into play is um, first of all when things get a bit contentious because um, you know sometimes those neighbourly uh, issues can be more tricky than anything uh, on, on domestic schemes. Secondly, things like community infrastructure levy, um, 
increasingly uh, difficult. Um, for example, the self-build exemption and things like that. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, we usually work as a team with planning consultant, architect, and other specialist consultants. So do you get involved in like party wall issues? Um, to an extent, we know our limitations in that, um, first of all, I'd always really point to getting a good party wall surveyor involved um, first off. And then if things get contentious um, in relation to party wall issues, it, it, it can be more of an issue for a property litigation lawyer because it's either about boundaries or um, uh, nuisance or uh, trespass and all these issues which are a bit outside of our domain because I always think of planning law really it's it's the interaction between it's an area of public law i.e um, you know when you're dealing with the powers and um, uh, constraints on the way that the state and you know emanations of the state like local authorities can behave so it's really if you're in, involving the public sector we you know we're involved if it's a private law matter between two neighbors that's not so much something for us so we took a little bit a bit of a break i had a, an emergency call <laughs> so we'll get back to the conversation uh, so we, we were starting to talk about rights of light and the difference between um, daylight and what is it rights to daylight and rights to yeah well um, uh, effect on daylight and sunlight is uh, a, a, an issue um, for the planning for, for planning decisions so um, applying local authorities policies about um, you know the maximum amount of impact that there can be on adjoining properties, usually based on the BRE guidance, uh, which is a, a sort of separate thing from um, formal rights of light, which are uh, easements or implied easements that adjoining property owners have. Um, you know, if they've got windows that have enjoyed uh, light for at least twenty years, and and if your development is going to um, reduce the amount of light below a certain amount. Uh, first thing to say is obviously this is hugely technical area where obviously we all reach for um, uh, rights of light surveyors. But secondly, you know, you either you may need to reach for a planning lawyer if we're talking about um, uh, daylight and sunlight issues in the planning context. And there've been various cases where planning permissions have been challenged and quashed by the courts where the local authority has um, uh, has relied on um, uh, uh, assessment work on daylight and sunlight, which turns out to be inaccurate or over optimistic. So we do need to be careful about all of that. Uh, or you may need to reach for a property litigation lawyer if you're dealing with formal um, rights to light where an adjoining owner may be um, uh, may have uh, the right to go for an injunction in the court or to seek compensation yeah bit field so and um, so what sort of projects do you get involved with um, so um, uh, I focus on I've always acted for mainly for the private sector mainly for uh, on large, complex, controversial schemes, 
Um, uh, so um, in, I suppose, with a split of about half of my work in London and half of the work uh, all across um, uh, England. Um, uh, and what I really love is projects where we can really make a difference, um, uh, perhaps um, large sustainable urban extensions or um, you know, new garden villages and new towns um, or big mixed use schemes within um, urban areas. So, um, and along the way, what I also love is quirky work, things which are unusual. So um, I acted on the agreements that were needed with Lambeth Council and various other public bodies in order to um, retain permanently the London Eye, which because people forget that when at the time of the millennium, when um, David Marks um, uh, had his amazing project for the uh, for the London Eye, it originally only had a temporary permission for a few years because no one knew if it was going to be a success. Everyone thought it was appalling that there was this great big um, uh, light-hearted uh, uh, structure at the centre of you know, historic London next to County Hall over the river from uh, the Houses of Parliament. And so it only had a temporary permission. So it was a long negotiation to, um, to get the eye on a long, uh, more permanent footing. So a long, long time ago now, but uh, that was one I was very proud of and see it every day on the local news when you see the silhouette, because now the London Eye is part of the London skyline. Um, secondly, probably only a stone's throw away from that, but to show that um, I'm not always just acting for the money, although I do like to act for the money. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I acted for the, uh, the, the skateboarders who, um, there's an area on the South Bank, which uh, you, 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 you probably know, uh, Lisa, in fact, I think we've talked we've about it before. We've had a conversation we about this. I yeah. Think, um, <laughs> In, in the brief, brief respite to lockdown, um, I took my 12-year-old son to London um, and sort of purposefully, when I was thinking of, of the routes and the you know, kind of like the tourist areas to go and take him to, it really, it was the London Eye and the undercroft of the South Bank where the <laughs> skateboarders park was. You know, for me, from Manchester, that's, you know, walking along the Thames with the skateboarders is, is a uh, um, important tourist centre for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a brilliant part of London. And, you know, th this really, um, it was a really fascinating set of issues because um, the South Bank Centre was looking to refurbish and extend the, their complex, which included... Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall uh, and the undercroft beneath um, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall has been colonised by skateboarders and everyone knows it, been used for, uh, you know, decades. And yeah, it's a bit grungy, but it's, a, it's an essential part of the mix that makes up London. And this is all about, you know, it's really interesting to me, um, you know, how you uh, arrive at really interesting city environments and you know you can't you can't plan everything to death some things just happen so skateboarders traditionally use this area um and when it was um and the refurbishment scheme uh entailed proposing shops in this area and kicking out the skateboarders 
uh, but uh, unfortunately for the South Bank Centre, um, uh, you know, skateboarders have dads and mums who sometimes know no lawyers. So I got involved and we had some crazy, we came up with some crazy ideas. We, um, we, we got it designated as an asset of community value. Uh, and then we applied for um, uh, town or village green status for the, um, for the skateboarding area, because it meets the, um, the tests for being a village green, crazily enough. And um, that took us... For, what, what are the tests for being a village green? Uh, that um, it has to uh, have an area which has been used um, by a local community for... Um, um, so as of right, um, uh, for, for to sort of f further um, local recreation and uh, I can't remember. It, but that, that that's the, there's a test which is all around. I, that I've got sort the of thing. phone going round in my head. The Kinks, the what is it? Village Green Preservation Society. Yeah. <laughs> No, definitely. Um, if I had music uh, rights or anything like that, I'd stick it on in the background. <laughs> yeah, we could have Waterloo Sunset as well. It could be. Yes. It could be. Just put the whole album on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, we so we had some litigation around that, and um, uh, it resulted in a settlement that kept the skateboarders at um, at the South Bank, and um, everyone's apparently lived happily together ever after. <laughs> so that was good. Um, uh, but 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 most of my work is is big, big big schemes as I say. So there's a large um, a regeneration project in Hampshire, um, Forley Waterside, which is the redevelopment of the former Forley Power Station, uh, where there's going to be sort of a thousand or so homes plus a marina and commercial development. And um, so all all of that really, um, all of that together with done. whoever rings me up up next with a crazy <laughs> question well you never know who listens to this podcast <laughs> we were just yeah. talking about this before the podcast if they you know it's on youtube and it's on spotify and it, it's just going to stay in the ether forever <laughs> you've got your own podcast haven't you uh you, yeah well I've, I've got a blog called um uh, simonicity where every saturday morning i sit down and try and write um, a bit about whatever's happening about planning and the intersection between planning and law and politics really which is really interesting at the moment in particular because you've got the will they or won't they in terms of reforming the planning system you've got climate change uh, the beauty agenda so um, yeah I, I, but I don't I don't um, uh, I leave podcasts to you, Lisa. You do them much better than me. <laughs> and we both run separate clubs and rooms on mm. Clubhouse as well. So Minds Constructed Together, which uh, is times changing at the moment. Uh, I think our next one is Tuesday morning at 8am. And then I'm going to try it for one o'clock on a Monday afternoon, I think after that. So I'm just trying to find the right slots yeah. for it. what time's yours uh it's a six o'clock on tuesday evenings but it is really difficult to find times but i think you'll agree number one it kept us all sane and doing <laughs> things and networking during um yeah. lockdown and number two it's just been a fantastic way of well i think we're an example of that of people who wouldn't otherwise have sort of uh connected to um to get to know each other in a way that's different from just um on 
yawn like LinkedIn or Twitter yeah. or something like that. Well, I, th I think it's been brilliant. We can start. Hmm. I mean, yeah, we met so what nine months ago online, and you know, there's a group of us um, hmm. like Ming and Jason hmm. Boyle, and you know, we're kind of all starting to to work together in various ways. It's just an example of how networking works yeah i mean i'm always interested by your your, your business lisa and how you you know how you expand your network and presumably like you know like us you're dependent on referrals and it's not mm. just existing clients who speak to other clients but it's it's people who are sort of aware who become aware of what you do and what mm. you're well known for um do you that's presumably the reason, one of the main reasons that you invest so much time in Clubhouse and the podcasts, et cetera. Well, yeah, I think, you know, I think when you're, a, when you're in business um, and you're trying to create leads and uh, clients and work and cash flow, sometimes you never quite know what's gonna work. Mm. You know, I think being an entrepreneur is about trying to, so I've got, two dogs in the background and I've no idea what they've got but they've probably got a coat of mine or something <laughs> <laughs> right, as well as my dad being ill I've got their uh dog they, they had a new puppy and they were like there you go so we've, we've now got a, a puppy as well as our dog <laughs> I dread to think what's going on sorry sorry um <laughs> um so we were talking about business and why we do these things mm. i think it's always good to be uh, an early adopter of mm. social media um so um you know i, I was I, I was for not first on twitter but an early adopter of twitter early on and um you know when i first set up my company Rains Architecture 10 years ago and it was just a really great way of kind of meeting people were much easier to connect mm. to social media back then and I think that's it I think once you kind of uh if you're an early adopter you hop on a, a social media you stick stick with it mm. about persistence and both of us know how hard mm. it is to kind of keep on going time and time yeah. again on a eight o'clock on a Monday morning or <laughs> consistency persistence um and it's about developing relationships yeah it's, it's something that we encourage our franchisees to do as well sort mm -hmm. of um but it, it works for um you know sort of the the franchise business itself yeah and part, part of what you're selling is um uh the the fact that you you are what people see it you know and they can trust you and they mm. can see how you know how you are in this podcast is i i suspect how you are if you're sitting down at a desk or a table with a mm. client yes go so. <laughs> <laughs> off on one talking about dogs, yeah, dogs yeah. without the dogs <laughs> without the dogs yeah. yes yeah absolutely and, and it's all about kind of bringing the whole person to mm of the table as well i think we've both talked about this before you know um you know i'm, I'm sort of quite transparent about kind of affiliations and um 
you said talking about you know like my transgender son and getting involved in you know lgbt stuff um and i think it and as well it's about finding people who've got the same values yeah, yeah, yeah so that's if, right. If, yeah. if someone gets annoyed because you're talking about your your dog or your dad or something mm. like that, you know, why would I actually want to? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And um, uh, I mean, and, and it's really interesting for us all to compare and contrast experiences because, mm. uh, you know, the way that um, I suspect we both started in large larger firms but have both sort of moved away from that but in different ways because you know I'm part of a, a firm that I helped set up five years ago where a number of us came out of big city firms and we decided to set up as a firm in one office in London um, I'm in the office at the moment and it's you know one open plan space and I suppose about a third of us are in at the moment but but um, that's it. And in some ways, I suppose it's quite a formal, uh, a traditional structure of a law firm with partners and staff, etc. Whereas you and now I'm beginning now I know what how you set up, at least I'm thinking, did I miss a trick here? This franchise thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it, it's very happy to have a chat with you about that but no yeah, I'm, I'm not changing things but but I think it's a really different way of it's a different model way. it's a different business mm. model I mean for mm. me um when I first you know when I first set up on my own and people like oh you know where do you want to be in five years time you know in terms of planning my future and how I was going to grow an office and you know I was thinking oh I need a fancy office in Manchester and I need eight staff and I want to be driving this car and you know I want to you know have these people doing this and these people doing that um and then for me, I realized that that was really just the kind of patriarchal model that I had been following, you know, yes. it's where I'd worked, it's, it's the experience that I've seen, whereas actually, um, you know, what was going to work for me was, was a, a really lean um, but efficient uh, business model. You know, so it's just, you know, um, it just me and the business with kind of a team of kind of trusted referral partners um, and, you know, subcontractors. The important thing about my business is just the, the system, you know, kind of like the way yeah. we've systemized everything so that it can be then multiplied um, and you know when I set up on my own I, and, and I thought about the idea of franchising relatively early on I just thought you know if I systemize things as I go through so I'm never reinventing the wheel um, then all we can do is, is tighten, tighten, yeah. tighten things up as we go along and you know sort of 10 years later you know we've got um we, we're continually kind of sharing knowledge of lessons learned and kind of what's gone well and what's not gone well what can we learn what can we improve and everyone's individual experience it's then just combined just to reinforce the system you know have we checked you know, a lot of <laughs> you know uh, you know um 
do you get on well with your neighbors <laughs> it's one of the clear questions that we ask yeah. our clients you know why well you likely to need a party wall mm. agreement mm. and you know there may be issues on planning there may be issues on mm. access there may be issues on party wall and it's just everything you know is all combined knowledge that we then um invest back into the business immediately yeah and through focusing on pretty much one type of development you can systemize because you pretty much know all the permutations of what can go wrong and yes. sort of manage them out yeah. yes yes yeah. um which does take me to sort of like one of the things that we did want to mention and i'm aware that we need uh, we've only got five minutes left mm. um sort of what are your views on the proposed government reforms to the planning system in five minutes um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i suppose last summer there was this you know the white paper was published and it you know the prime minister was saying in the forward that that they were going to be tearing up the old system and replacing it with something completely new. It wasn't really so radical, but it was quite radical. And um, I think nearly everyone, developers included, thought that most of it was pretty unnecessary and that what we really need to do is make sure the system is better resourced, uh, modernised and, yes, digitised much more. Um, uh, and you know sen sensible changes in um, policy etc but but really it, it we didn't need to start again mm. and we've had a lot of noise over the last year and lo and behold you know now Michael Gove has come in to replace Robert Jenrick and the reforms are paused and I suspect what we probably will get is just a little tightening of procedures here and there and changes of policy but nothing too radical, which is sort of fine by me because I'm a great a believer in the current system and it's frustrating at times, but ultimately I think it is fair for everyone involved. It's fair for our clients if they're the developers. Mm. It's, it's fair for those who want to, um, uh, you know, make representations, etc. cetera. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and we'll lose a lot if we, um, try and start again so that so so um i don't think we're going to see radical reform but you know the world is changing so quickly um and rightly we need to respond to the climate emergency and make sure that we've got a system that can deliver the huge changes that are going to be needed to uh, get us to uh, net zero carbon by 2050 you know so in terms of everything that's needed by way of renewable energy and other other um, other technologies and uh, a lot of this doesn't come without pain because there will be some local residents who are next to you know new new pieces of infrastructure which are being proposed um, for the greater good and they'll be objecting and um, the, 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 it's going to be an interesting time for all us all of us involved in development as we adapt our thinking to uh, reflect all these new ways of doing things. I suspect um, you've written some blogs on this. 
Does it sound like that? Yes. <laughs> I think now's the now's the time to kind of bring the conversation to a close and yeah. let you promote your blog again. So how do we find? How do yeah, we... well, if people are interested, it's uh, it's Simonicity. So Simon I City, uh, or you can uh, join uh, Lisa and myself on Clubhouse. And if you do that, <laughs> there's uh, the planning law and planned club on on Tuesday nights. There's um. Uh, more planning lawyers than you can shake a stick at. Uh, so, um, what an exciting uh, idea that is! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we make so, it. Yes, and hope to see you. Are you going to be able to join us on at eight o'clock? Tuesday? Oh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes. Are you going to be yes. able to join? Oh, brilliant! Oh, that's yep. nice. Yes. Yeah. Get, get the gang back together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that would be really good. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Um, well, thanks very much, Simon, for coming on. Um, we'll, I'll pe we'll post a link to your blog in the blurb. So if, if people just want to check out the description. And um, if you've enjoyed listening um, to the podcast, please um, sub like, subscribe, share. And likewise on YouTube, like, subscribe and share. And um, if you want to come on, please get in contact with me. You can find me on most channels, um, Lisa Raines, R-A-Y-N-E-S, um, or you can have a look at our franchise um, website, which is prideroadfranchise.co.uk. So, um, and that's it. I'm going to say goodbye to Simon. And, well, uh, bye, Lisa. Thank you. And thanks for joining us.